organization. And as I grew older, I realized that one could get involved in it and that there were things that you can do and that I hoped to be able to make a political contribution. It's also exceptionally interesting. So it's both a feeling that opportunity to do something beneficial to society, but something that interested me very much as well. Yes, absolutely. So as a constituency MP, your constituents can raise a number of local issues with you. So what do you find comes up most locally? Well, it varies. There are different reasons why people get in touch. So there are people who get in touch because there's a campaign going on about some national issue and you get emails about that from people who subscribe to particular campaign groups. You get people who write into you because they feel very strongly themselves and write an individual letter that is not to do with a campaign group. And then you get, particularly coming to surgeries, people whose interactions with the state aren't working for whatever reason, that there may have been a mistake by a government body of any kind. It could be in welfare, it could be DVLA, it could be HMRC, it could be the health service. Something's gone wrong in the delivery of a public service and they need your help as a member of parliament to put it right. And that's the individual work of seeking redress agreements that a constituency MP has. And I think it's very important because you can put things right for people by highlighting what has gone wrong. Yes, totally. And also, as I said in my introduction, you've held a number of positions in government and sat on a range of parliamentary committees. Which of those roles do you think has made the most difference? I think as a government minister, you are making decisions, but you're making decisions in a very narrow field. So... If you have a specific responsibility in government, you will be able to decide to follow policy X rather than Y. If you're the minister in charge of a bill, you will be able to decide on clause X rather than Y. But what you won't be able to do is to change the whole collective agreement of the government that belongs pretty much exclusively to the prime minister, to some extent, the chancellor. So in your area, you can do something significant. As a backbencher, you're covering a much wider range, but with no specific direct authority to change anything. So you have to do it through influence, through building coalitions, and through the media. And as leader of the Commons, on a number of occasions, I've seen you stand up and make sure that the MP who has come to you, who has not found that they've had the department answering their questions as quickly as you would like, you've raised issues on their behalf as well. So you are keen to make sure that democracy works. The Leader of the House is an unusual role in government because you are both the representative of the government in the House on a weekly basis of business questions and in the organisation of business, which is a government prerogative, but you are also the representative of the House to the government, so that if a member says, I haven't got an answer to my letter, it is very much your job to go to other ministers. And indeed, when there was a particular problem, I went to the Cabinet Secretary to say there is a backlog of responses to members who have a right to answers on behalf of their constituents, and this needs to be improved. That's a key part of the role which other leaders of the House have also very much followed. And obviously you've stood in seats before you became the MP for North East Somerset, with a majority of almost 15,000. So what lessons did you learn in your unsuccessful campaigns that helped you in 2010 and beyond? Well, campaigning, you always learn things. I came to campaign for you in I uh, know, I remember in 2005. The thing about standing in seats that you don't win, particularly in a seat like Central Five, which I knew I wasn't going to win, you have much more time. You have time to talk to people and you have time to understand how people are leading very different lives from your own. So it's a very valuable learning experience and learning about bits of the country that you may not 
know well beforehand. What do you think is a common myth about being a politician? Oh, that's a very interesting question. There are lots of, of common myths about politics, as there probably are about people in all walks of life. I think people don't know quite how complete being a politician is. That is to say, as a member of parliament, you are always a member of parliament, particularly when you're in your own constituency. And people are very polite and very nice and say, I'm sorry to disturb you when you're with your family and so on and so forth, but actually you are still a member of parliament and you are still there to be answerable to them, even if you've got a half dozen children pulling you in different directions at the same time. So it's a very complete What other misconceptions? I think people assume we have more power to change things than we do. I wish we did, but the process of change is, is slow and cumbersome. And perhaps quite rightly in a democracy, you need to build up consent and coalition before you can change things fundamentally. So if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Oh, I think the things that I will remember when I'm no longer acting in politics are the things I've done individually for constituents. That that actually is where you know you have changed something and helped somebody with their lives. One of the most touching things that happened to me is I was going to speak in Stoke-on-Trent and I got on the train and a gentleman came up to me and said, could he introduce me to his children? And I said, yes, of course. And I went and said hello to two children suffering from Batten disease. And Batten disease is a really horrible disease of children for which there is a very expensive drug that halts the disease. It doesn't cure it, but it halts it. And these children were receiving this drug. And I'd campaigned to get this drug actually for a constituent of mine or a child of a constituent of mine. And this has made a difference to the children who have received it. And that was from constituency work. And it's something I can identify as a change that with other MPs I was able to make that has fundamentally changed for the better the lives uh, of admittedly a small number of people, but at least of some people. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, you are trying to improve people's lives. And people do assume that politicians are only in it for themselves, which isn't the case. That obviously does also lead to insults as well, because people have that perspective. So what insult are you most proud of, though? <laughs> oh, I don't know, really. I mean, the, 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 the funniest was somebody got in touch with me at the last election and, and said, Dear Mr. I'm very sorry I issued a death threat against you on Twitter. I was very cross at the time. Well, the truth is, I hadn't noticed this death threat. I had no idea he'd done it. It wouldn't have bothered me if, if I had noticed it, so I wouldn't have taken it very seriously. And I just thought it was quite funny that um, somebody had brought to my attention something I'd otherwise have been in glorious ignorance about that was just the grumpiness that people sometimes feel. And I think one shouldn't take insults too seriously. Most of them uh, are not meant in a particularly heartfelt way. Yeah, just on that, obviously security, since I worked with Lawrence Robertson in 2001, security has had to be increased somewhat. How have you found that? Has that impacted your work at all? Or do you just that, does that just sit in the background? No, I think it's really important that MPs remain part of normal society. It's, it's really interesting when I speak to people from other countries, how impressed they are by the availability of British politicians, by our lack of security, by the fact that we are open to voters and that we are around and about. And this is a really important part of our democracy. And I'd go as far as to say of our civilization that we, we aren't some priestly class who have to be hidden away we are part of the general population. Like having an unarmed police, we have politicians who are not hidden behind barbed wire. And I think this is really, really important. So when Parliament returns, what do you want to achieve? And are you going to well, conference this year? 
our Barbit conference this year, yes, I'm, and I haven't missed uh, in recent years. What I want to achieve is that we pass good legislation that will help the Conservatives to win a general election. Risk of Labour remains absolutely as it was. We saw Angela Rayner at the TUC conference promising to restore power to the trade unions. This is absolutely classic old-fashioned Labour that would be very damaging to the economy. We need to ensure that we have an effective, competitive economy outside the European Union, trading freely with the rest of the world. We need to legislate to do that, to get the benefits that we have earned ourselves through Brexit, and to make the economic changes that give people more freedom over their own lives, to keep more of their own money, the tax-cutting agenda, deregulation agenda. We also need to look very closely at how we're implementing net zero, which seems primarily to be cost for people. So if you personally had complete control over the King's Speech, what do you think the top three things that you would have in that would be? I would look at the net zero agenda. I would change those things that are impractical. So I would not demand that firms that don't put in heat pumps get penalised and have to charge more for their boilers. I wouldn't do anything that in cost of living crisis puts up costs for people. So that would be delaying any net zero activities that will increase costs. It's really important we should do it as technology evolves and as we have the ability to do it without charging people. That would be the first thing that I would do. The second thing that I would do is look at the opportunities within the budget for cutting people's taxes, but that needs to be matched with expenditure cuts. We are spending too much money. When I was in government, we had proposals saving £6 billion on reform of the civil service. I would like to make sure that happens. And actually, I would then abolish inheritance tax. I think better to abolish one tax outright than to make fiddly little measures that nobody notices. And the third thing that I would like to see us do is that we should legislate to remove tariffs on goods coming into this country, that we should go for one-way free trade because that lowers the costs for consumers and we are in a cost-of-living crisis. I would get rid of all uh, protective tariffs, though with some staggering for some of the agricultural tariffs because I don't think our farmers could cope overnight. Sounds sounds good. So as a member of Parliament since 2010, you have spent your entire parliamentary career as part of the governing party. Do you think this will change after the next election? Do you think that the Conservatives will be able to bring it back? I'd say two things on that. One, one is that this is a question where politicians can only give one answer. No politician can go into elections saying uh, it's all disaster and we're going to lose. And therefore, one needs to understand that, that is, the Lib Dems have to go into an election saying they think they're going to win. They're obviously not. Now, then to come to your question, answering it with that caveat, but also answering it on the basis of what I think is possible. I think there is a route through for the Conservatives to win. I think it's a difficult route, but we've got to show that we're on people's sides. So that's why I think what I was saying about cutting costs for people, showing that we really care and mind about the cost of living problem that people are facing, that is the route through. That ties in with net zero. That ties in with keeping the state under control, cutting expenditure and cutting taxes. So yes, it is possible. Brilliant. Okay, cool. So you're on the record as having said that Somerset should have its own time zone. Do you think there needs to be all more autonomy locally and are we heading towards more devolution? Well, that, that, that was, as you know, a joke. I was mocking the effort to change us from 
our current British summer time and Greenwich mean time because the real argument is that people want more daylight and they're not going to get it unless they appeal to a higher authority, even in the House of Commons. And so I was mocking that ridiculous private members bill in about 2010, fairly, fairly shortly after I got into Parliament. No, no, I, I'm not in favour of devolution. I think that a lot of devolution has been bad. I think a lot of local government is not very competent, right? So Birmingham going bankrupt at the moment. I think the devolution settlement has been bad for governance in Scotland and in Wales. I, I wouldn't repeal it because I don't think that's politically practical. But I certainly wouldn't have more mayors. I think most of the mayors we've got are, uh, particularly the mayor of London and the mayor of the West of England, are a cost that do absolutely nothing to improve public services. Uh, Andy Street and Ben Hunchen are, are pretty good, but that's the luck of having two highly capable individuals. I think they put extra costs, extra bureaucracy on people, and it just isn't a good enough standard of government to wish to increase it. Certainly it does seem to increase the opportunity for passing the buck, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen this in my own constituency where they've cut a number of bus routes in North East Somerset, many fewer in Bath, because they always concentrate on the urban rather than the rural areas. But leaving that to one side, Bath and North East Somerset Council blames the West of England Combined Authority, and the West of England Combined Authority blames Bath and North East Somerset Council, in spite of the fact that central government's provided them with money for these bus routes. It's absolutely ridiculous and leads to poor services for the people I represent. And I think everyone's in favour of devolution in local government until they see the people who are running local government, at which point they despair. Absolutely. And obviously, equally, we now have a 24-hour news cycle. So some subjects can be done to death, others can be missed. For example, you have previously raised the important issue of free childcare being unavailable for parents unless they pay for additional hours. So what else do you think should be in the news that's currently not addressed at the moment? Well, you, you, you raise a very good point that I'll tack on to what I've just said about localism, because actually we are a unitary country. And regardless of who is nominally responsible, people blame the government. And you see this with the aerated concrete. That is a matter for local government and for uh, school boards. But everyone thinks that the Secretary of State must deal with it. And that's the reality of 24-hour news that you can't say it's nothing to do with us. So what should be in the news more that isn't? Well, uh, actually, what goes on in Parliament? That last week, we had a terrible energy bill in front of Parliament that will increase costs for consumers, which I voted against on third reading, which has hardly got any attention. Uh, yesterday, we did the online harms bill, which is a very difficult bill because its aims are worthy, but is it, is it the right way of doing it? If people knew what was going on in Parliament more and thought about the changes that were coming through, we might get better legislation. I was going to say, do you do you think that we have a lot of bad legislation? I, I, I think we do. I, I mean, I think we get too much legislation. And we get legislation that starts years ago, it gets into the system, and then it just goes through the sausage machine without anybody really particularly wanting it. I think that's true of the energy bill, that it started... Gosh, its origins were probably when Alec Sharma was Secretary of State. And then it's passed through a number of Secretaries of State and a number of Prime Ministers. And finally, it's had its third reading in the House of Commons, but it's dealing with problems that we had some years ago rather than problems that we've got today. What do you think about the fact that, obviously, with a change of Secretary of State, you can get a change in the focus of a department? Do you think that impacts legislation in the way that the system pushes things out? Yes and no. It will change it at the margin, but that if you are an incoming Secretary of State, 
you've got a slot for a bill, you can't change it fundamentally because otherwise you lose the bill altogether. So you'll be saying, well, there's 60% of it I want, there's 40% that I don't want, I can probably change 10, 15%, uh, and I can't do much more than that. I mean, I actually had this as um, leader of the House when the Secretary of State changed over the weekend. The new Secretary of State didn't like the bill uh, that was about to be approved to go into Parliament, wanted to change it fundamentally, Downing Street wanted the bill, the bill went through with a few changes. So it's a, a slightly complicated picture. So what do you think the world is going to look like in five years' time? Do you have a positive feeling for it? I expect, it'll still be, I expect it'll still be round. I, what... I, 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 I think ma- ma- making long-term political predictions is um, a very dangerous business. They're always wrong. They're quite fun, but they're always wrong. Yes, absolutely. No one could have expected COVID. No, quite. Or, in, or well, I suppose we might have been able to predict Ukraine after 2014. Sometimes one misses what's staring you in the face. But very often the problems that people forecast don't happen. And the things that people think are very unlikely do happen. That's just the way of the world, I guess it is. Yeah. So what gives you most hope for the next generation? Oh, um, the, the next generation. That as a father of six children, how can one not be hopeful? It's in, it's in our children. It is in that great future that they are making for themselves, that we made for ourselves when we were younger, that the the ability of humanity to succeed, to develop, to innovate is enormous and it has led to the success of mankind over thousands of years and that will that will continue. And like every generation before me, I want other generations after me to be more successful than our generation has been. But that is up to them and up to their individual effort and drive. I was going to say, do you think like you've followed your father into politics? Do you think any of your children are showing any enthusiasm? Well, they're all quite interested in it. Uh, whether they want to go into it, they're, they're still quite young. And whether going into it as soon as you leave university is a good idea is, I think, debatable. But I wouldn't be surprised if when they're a bit older or quite a lot older, they were tempted. Excellent. OK, well, Sir Jacob, thank you very much for coming to talk to us today. It's been really interesting to hear about what drives you and how you got to where you are. Thank you to the listeners who've hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it. If you have any questions regarding the podcast today, please feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. If you feel you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book Party Games on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you have a good week, one and all. Sir Jacob, thank you very much again.